Yes, uh, this is my second time to preach here, and I, I always appreciate being able to do that. Uh, my wife and I, uh, our family were here, I guess it was almost 10 years ago, in between churches, and uh, this church um, was a salve to our, to our, our, to our wounds and uh, really helped us get through some difficult times, and, and we're forever indebted uh, to this church for that, and, and since then, uh, Milton and the pastors here have been a resource for us at Faith Bible, and always been there and been very helpful, and and really appreciate that, and uh, um, indebted for all their love and service to us. This morning, we're going to be going through James chapter four, verse six. I have no idea why I chose that passage. I mean, isn't it a little crazy for a guy new to your church to just come in and try to teach on humility? Uh, believe me, uh, I don't come as someone who has mastered, has understood, who, who comes to you as a, as a forerunner of understanding humility. I come as a beginner, as a novice, as someone who has been moved by this passage. This passage has changed me in dramatic ways. Only a few things in this life have, and, and this passage being one of those. And I just wanted to, to share this with you, um, to share a passage that means so much to me. And hopefully you can see God's word and um, it might minister to you as well. Let's go before the Lord now and ask him to, to bless this time. <clears throat> Fathers, we come before you. We come before you, Lord, realizing, especially from this worship and from communion, that we're sinners. Lord, that there's nothing that we can bring to the table in and of ourselves that is in and of our flesh. And the greatest thing we can bring to you is our weakness. What a, something that is so anti-flesh, anti-world, it's different. Father, you call us to not be first, but to be last. You call us to die to our Ourselves, you call us to see the greatness and the depth of our sins, everything that is so opposite to what the world tells us to do. Lord, as we see the truth of who we are, and we see the truth of who you are as our Savior. We fall so short. Lord, that truth helps us understand that we need you. That we need you not just some of the times, we need you not just most of the times. But there's really no time in our lives, in our sanctification, in our process that we can do without you. Father, it's just so hard to think that way. I see so much pride in my own life and it's so ugly and, and detestable. 
Father, help us. We know we're, we know that pride is, is not something we'll ever, or humility is not something we'll ever achieve. It's a process. But help us, Father. Help us see the reality of who we are so that we might understand more and more how much we need you. For your honor and glory, in Jesus' name, amen. When I was in seminary, uh, which was when the dinosaurs were around the earth, but I don't know what it was, but Milton was before me, so I don't know what was roaming here when Milton was there. But I remember graduating and, and leaving and thinking about pride and, and well, mainly humility, humility and, and thinking that, you know, it was something significant, something important. Uh, I, I needed to humble myself. I, I understood that intellectually, but I, I really didn't understand the depths of it. I, I didn't understand that, that humility was really dying to yourself. I didn't understand that there was nothing in and of me that was of value that, that is in the flesh. I didn't understand my need to die to myself. I just didn't get that. But I, I understood that humility was important. In the process of ministry there at, at, uh, at First Baptist, I... I've thought back and tried to figure out, was there a time where things changed? And I just don't, I don't think there was a time where things changed, but somewhere in that process, I thought, I started to believe that sanctification was just working harder. I wasn't taught that, and I'm not blaming anybody for that other than myself, but I thought that sanctification was just working harder, that, that I had all the grace that I needed through the cross, and, and, and that all I needed to do was just work harder. If I sinned, well, it's just my fault. I just need to make myself not do these things and work harder at not sinning, and if the church wasn't growing, if I wasn't being a good enough pastor, it was my fault. I needed to just work harder, and yes, I would pray. And yes, I would read my Bible, but it was a checkbox. Do you understand what I'm saying? It was something that, that, that really didn't move me. There wasn't a dependence on that. There wasn't a, a need for that. I thought it was all within myself. I honestly believed that. And God said that was enough. And he put me on the bench. And I, he had me leave the other church and, and uh, I, we came here and, and we were here for, for six months or, or so and looking for a church. And it was hard being on the bench. I mean, it was hard, you know, thinking that, that was my identity and you could just see my, all of my selfishness in that. In, in that pride really changed me. I became harsher. I became argumentative, more argumentative maybe. I became uh, just uh, somebody that wasn't content, wasn't happy, wasn't joyful. I mean, all of these things of the pride within me really changed me within and made me a terrible person. And it was destroying my life, absolutely. 
My loving wife, she wouldn't say anything at the time, but they all look back on it then and say, yeah, you know, there was, it was a little bit different. And then I came here and I started learning about humility and it was a, it was a process. It wasn't something that happened overnight. Um, it was probably three or four years of studying while I was at faith, just learning and learning. And I finally realized what Romans 7 is saying, that there is nothing that I bring to the table. There is nothing that I can do that is in my flesh to please God, that I am dependent upon God for everything. That was a transforming day for me. Now, I want y'all to know that that's because of that, that doesn't mean I am perfectly humble. It just means I understand a lesson to be true. Uh, in, in that process of humility is a journey, isn't it? It's not, it's not a destination. It's not something that we can arrive at humility. Uh, it's, it's a journey. It's a process of learning to be humble. And, and it's a process as, as I would hope for y'all to, to see this morning, it's a process of seeing your sinfulness and understanding God's holiness. And those are just so diametrically opposed. And, and we don't look at our sinfulness because we're ashamed. It's hard to look at the reality of who we are because, you know, we feel guilt and condemnation. And that is why it is so important to look at yourself, who you are, and then look at the gospel and remind yourself that you can see the reality of who you are. It's okay because Christ died for those sins. And because of that, we can be honest with ourselves. And it's through being honest that we can find this humility. So if you wouldn't mind standing, we're going to read... God's word this morning. And it's not a very big passage. You're just going to be stretching your legs for a second and then sitting right back down. It's just one verse. But follow along with me in your Bibles as I read James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. First point we're going to look at this morning is there's a greater grace. There is a greater grace. Milton, do you walk around or? So I walk around. Is that Okay. As long as I don't fall off the front, we're okay? Okay, good. It says, but there is a greater grace. In the, in the start there, as you see this word, but, and, and it's a contrastive word, and he's saying, in contrast, in contrast to what's been happening in chapter three and in first part of chapter four, there is grace. There's this greater grace. But, but what's the but for? What's the contrast? What's in contrast of? And he goes in contrast, and we're going to look at these, a few of these verses in contrast to the reality of the sinfulness and the power of the flesh. In, in, in order to look at that, turn with me in your Bibles to 
to James chapter 3, and we'll just look at a few verses through there. James chapter 3, verse, verse 2 says, we, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bride, uh, bridle the whole body as well. And what he's saying there in verse 3 is that, is that the, the, the body, the flesh, is uncontrollable. He said all of us are, are sinful. All of us are, are imperfect. All, none of us are, are perfectly sinless. All of us mess up. It says, because of that, it shows that the body, the flesh, is untamable. It, it can't be tamed. And he goes on and, and listen to these verses. He goes on in verse 3. He says, you can tame a horse. You can put a bit in a mouth. You can tame a horse. You can't tame a person. You can't tame our flesh, but you can tame a horse. Verse 4, he goes on. He says, you can control a ship. You can take a, a huge, heavy ship that is, that, that is pushed around by the winds and all of that, and you can control it by a little rudder, but you can't control the flesh. And he goes on in verse 3, he said in 6, he says, And the tongue is a, is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. And sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. And he's referring to now, he's talking about the flesh. He's talking about who we are uh, in the, the, the flesh, talking about this sarke. And he's using the tongue to be the representative of that sarke. And, and he says in the, the, the tongue is just wicked he said, it's set on fire by hell itself. He goes on and he explains that, you know, it just takes a little fire to burn down a whole forest. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? When you think of that, you see these big, amazing fires that, have, that we understand them being in Southern California, you know, that have burned acres and acres. And me being in San Bernardino, we had a fire outside of our window. <laughs> about two years ago, woke up and the hill's on fire, hey? And it was just a spark that, that started all of that. And he continues on and he says the, the, the tongue is like a small fire that destroys the whole forest. The tongue is so powerful, it, it corrupts the entire body. He goes on and he says, look, everything in this world. Now think about this statement. Everything in the world is tameable, but the flesh. Lions are tameable. Bears are tameable in comparison to taming the flesh. In comparison to the, the uncontrolled nature of the flesh, everything else is easy. The, the, the flesh is just out of control. And, and, and you just, you know, you're reading this and it's bleak. You know, if, if you don't get to James chapter four, when you're reading James chapter three, man, you're just, you know, you're soured. Say, what in the world? James chapter three, eight says, but no one can tame the, tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And then moving on to the context of this passage, James, passage, James chapter four, verse four says this. 
you adulteress, you adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. And, and I don't know if you, but I was reading that and, you know, very bleak, very discouraging. You know, where's the hope in that? Where's the, where's the, the promise of any type of deliverance? You, you know, you're looking at that and you say, man, you, you know, what can I do? And then he has this but, but out of looking at all of James, all of James 3, and there was a lot more, and you're reading through that, and you get to James 4, and you, you just see all this turmoil and all this mess, and God is jealous. He, 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 he longs to have fellowship with us, and we're adulterers, and man, you're going, oh, wow. He says, but there is a greater grace. Amen. The thing that is the most untamable thing in this world, there is a grace greater than that. And so as we're looking through this passage and we're trying to understand pride and humility, you understand that there is a greater grace than everything we face, something more powerful than all of our difficulties. Spend a moment and just look at the word of word grace. What is the definition of grace? Uh, well, before we look at that, uh, there's there's three uh, graces looked at in the Bible in three different perspectives. If it's looked at as common grace, uh, that's something that that everyone experiences: God's goodness, the weather, the rain. Then there's saving grace. It's what we receive in salvation. That's the the grace that we receive to open our eyes, to help us understand our sins, our need for, for a savior, the grace that, that redeems us, the grace that, that regenerates us, the grace that makes us a new creation. Then there's a third grace, and is, that is the trans, transforming grace, sanctifying grace. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Now, grace can be defined, uh, it's been defined many different ways. A couple of these definitions are God, God's riches at Christ's expense, God's favor at Christ's expense. Certainly those are uh, good definitions. We use those uh, in the classroom, especially with our kids. For me, grace is this. It is, the f- it is the full goodness and power of God without any restrictions, restrictions or limitations. God's grace is that he's giving us everything that we need according to his stockpile of resources of goodness because God has such a deep well of goodness and power and all those things. He's giving us, he's giving us everything from his resources of goodness. James 1, 2, verse that I preached here the first time I was here. If you can turn to James 1, you see that this is, even in this passage, we can see God's grace that he's talking about. We'll see exactly what he's referring to. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you might be perfect 
incomplete, lacking nothing. What is he saying? He says, as you're going through trials, if you turn to him in the middle of trials, God will change you by his grace. It's his power that he does. Yes, we turn to him. Yes, we depend upon him. Yes, we rely upon him. And as we're doing that, he is by his grace changing us, causing us to see sin, causing us to be able to recognize sin, causing us to have power over the sin and creating in us a different person so that we are more like Christ. So we're transformed more in the image of Christ. This is just what God's grace does. He's in the process. God's grace is not without our responsibility, but nonetheless, his saving grace is not our responsibility, but his sanctifying grace doesn't come without our responsibility. But just to see, just to understand its greatness, you can see how it works. John chapter 1, verse 16, from a theological perspective, he says, for of his fullness we have all received. Think about this. Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Philippians 4, 9 says, and my God will supply you with what? All your needs according to his limited supply of grace, right? No, he'll supply you all of his rich, all, all your needs, all your needs, not your wants, not your desires, not your pleasures, all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That's just a little bit, right? According to the riches of the glory of Christ, which is abounding, he gives us all all we need. He doesn't hold back anything. He doesn't look at you and says, hey, well, you're a redheaded guy from Texas, so I'm not giving you as much grace as I would some guy that's a native-born Californian, right? Hey, hey, hey. I'm going to send Milton over there. Yeah, you, you know, there, there's no limitations to his grace. There's no limitations to the power that he gives us in sanctification that he gives abundantly beyond what, what we can ever ask or think. I, I was reading, I forget who it was, I think it was MacArthur, and he was talking about what about if somebody were to say, hey, the grace you have given me was not enough. He said, well, okay, I'll give you more. I'll give you more and I'll give you more and I'll give you more grace. I'll give you as much as you need and because grace, because God's grace is an endless flowing drain, endless. And he just has this power for us. And it's hard to, to understand because we all struggle with sin, don't we? We do. And our struggle with sin is part of helping us understand that we need a Savior so there's that side of it. But at the same point, you know, we see these passages that talk about the greatness of God's grace and you say, yeah, but man, I'm not victorious in every sin. And, and, and that's a reality. In, in, in maybe by the end of this passage, 
will help you through that, some of these areas. But God's grace is limitless. Psalm 84, 11 says, The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Amen? It's God's grace. We need to remind ourselves about that. There's a little booklet out. I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called The Gospel Primer. Yeah, and I use that in all of my counseling and in, in all of uh, my uh, discipleship on, on these type of issues. And this is exactly what it's saying. And this is what we're, we're learning is, look, we need to understand that God's grace is abundant. It's a song that we all know, grace, grace. You don't want me to sing this, believe me. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. You want me to sing it? No. no. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sins. Amen? It's beautiful, beautiful. Now, we're going to look in a minute and understand that this grace that God has for us, this endless trove of, of grace that he has, this, this beautiful and, and, uh, and sufficient grace that he has is limited to our response. It's limited to our response. We can open it up or we can shut it down. That's why I was giving you my testimony and and I want you to understand my testimony is that I lived as a pastor for a long time shutting down that grace. That's embarrassing. That's terrifying to me because one day I'll be judged for that. Absolutely. You wonder how many people that I, I preach to, you know, still believe that. I hate that. But that's a reality. We see that there is a downside to this, that there is something that, that destroys, that kills, that stops, that grace. The point, second point we're looking at is that pride stops grace. Pride stops grace. And looking back at the point, at the passage that, that we're dealing with, it says, but he gives a greater grace, and we just looked at that. Then he goes on and says, there for it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he starts off, he says, therefore, it says, what is he talking about? What says, well, he's referring to Proverbs 3.34. This is a passage come from there, probably trans, translated from the Septuagint, but nonetheless uh, from Proverbs 3.4. And he starts out and he says, God is opposed the proud. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a disturbing point, especially as we just got through reading, you know, gospel primer, and we see that, that God is in favor with us. So what in the world does he mean that he's opposed to us? How can he be in favor of us and opposed to us at the same time? Two totally different issues. One has to do with our position 
One has to do with how he sees us, who we are uh, uh, in his eyes, the fact that, that we have put faith in Christ and therefore because of the blood of Christ, we have been redeemed. We are now a new creation. We, we, are, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have been adopted uh, by Christ. We have, we have been called. We have been predestined. We have been elected. That is who we are. That doesn't change. Why doesn't that change? Because it's based on his works, not our works. Here's a couple verses that would encourage you in Romans 8, 1. It says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Look, if, if you're not in Christ, there's condemnation, right? But if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. And not just that. But going to the end of that verse or into that chapter, Romans 8, 31. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. So what then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he just goes on and talks about the love of God. Who can separate us from the love of God? If Christ is the one that justified us, if he's the one that declared us righteous, who can, come to, who can compare us? Who can say we're guilty? God's the one says we're innocent. So he's not talking about, when he's talking, when he says that God is opposed to us, he's not talking about positionally. He's talking about intimately. He's talking about having a relationship with God. Uh, men, you might sometimes uh, make your wives mad and do things. Uh, I don't know how you would do that. I never do that personally. My wife has promised me she would never make me sleep on the couch. The doghouse is a different saying. But, you, you know, you, you say something dumb like we do and, and all that, and, and, you know, she's offended. She still loves you. She's not wanting to kick you out of the house. You're going to still sleep in the bed at night. It's okay. But then you go, oh, and you try to, you know, get lovey-dovey, and she says what? Well, No. There's a relationship thing here, and that's the way it is with God, and there's a relationship between us, and, and, and it's not that he doesn't love us, but it's that we have started loving something else, and, and he can't allow that. So he's opposed to that. And let's look at the word opposed. The word opposed means resist. It means to put your forces, your mentality, your physicality against something. It's to make something your enemy, to resist with force. Dr. Thomas, who was our professor in seminary Greek, and he said this. He said, it is the idea of resistance... It is not just a withdrawal or, or of blessing or passive disapproval, but the sense of being actively engaged against someone. When God says that he is opposed to the proud, he is not saying that, that look, I'm just, I'm just dissatisfied with you and you're still okay and I'm going to let you uh, I'm going to let you receive my glory and take my glory and live however you want to. I don't really care. He's not saying he's passive to this at all. God is saying that he's active, that he that he restrains us, 
that he stops the grace, that he stops the flow, but because he cares about our relationship with him. He's jealous in verse 5. Uh, James chapter 4 verse 5 says that God is jealous and he's longing for us to have a relationship with us. And when we adulterate ourselves with other things that he's jealous and wants that relationship. So he's not going to allow us to have his glory because he's wanting us or to, to have his grace because he's wanting us to see our need for a savior. So he opposes that. He resists us. He strong arms us. He says, you can't go any further from this. Isaiah 66, verse 2 says, from, from my hand made all things. Thus all these things uh, come into being, declares the Lord. But the one thing I look for is to him who, uh, who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. He's going to turn to the humble person. He's going to turn away from the prideful person. What is pride? The easiest definition of pride is thinking too highly of yourself. There's a great quote I, I thought you would appreciate. I know I appreciate this. Um, maybe not be able to find it. But this one person said that if you ever understood the reality of who you are, I mean, if you really see it, saw yourself for who you are, the truth of who you are, you wouldn't be prideful. I appreciated that. It's something that's been helpful for me as I'm, as I'm reading this section, as, as I'm studying this, this material, I, I realize that, look, uh, I have studied pride and, 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 I have, and, and, and it has changed me and I've humbled myself to a certain degree. But man, is there not an infinite well in this area? There's just so much pride in my life and so much pride in, in ours, all of ours. It's just endless. And that pride destroys our intimacy with God. Martin says, pride makes us self-centered and leads us to conclude that, that we deserve all we can see, touch, and imagine. It creates greedy appetites for far more than we need. Pride can... Uh, subtly calls us to no longer see our sin and need forgiveness. You ever wondered why someone else can see your sin and you can't? I mean, don't raise your hand. Put your hands down here. Right? You know, your kids know your sin. Your wife knows your sin. Your neighbor knows your sin. Your dog knows your sin, right? <laughs> then you look at yourself and he says, no, I'm pretty good. No, I had things going on. I, I'm okay. You, you know, if you need some answers, come to me. I've got it going on. 
You know, I, I can't see myself for the reality of who I am. And that's because the reason I can't is because pride is blinding to us. It, and you think about it. What pride says is that I am good. How else am I going to think I'm bad if I think I'm good? Right? The only way I'm ever going to get over my pride is through reading God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit and enlightening me because pride blinds me to the truth of who I am. And I just can't see it. We see pride in Adam and Eve. We see pride in the tax collector. We see pride in David. David walked up on his roof one day, looked out, and he saw something he wasn't supposed to see. He knew that. Didn't have to ask him that. There was no question in his mind if that was appropriate, if that was right. He knew it. It wasn't right. Chose it anyway. Why? Because of his pride. Thought, hey, I'm King David. I'm a God after, I'm a man after God's own heart. Certainly this isn't wrong. Well, that might be wrong. What you do is wrong, but what I do, well, that's not wrong. And he justified his sin and he was able to, to see it as something less than it really was. Pride is seeing the reality of who we are, the truth of our needs, of our, of our, of our failures. I want to encourage you with this. I know most people will probably tell you, except for pastors at this church, most people would probably tell you, don't look into your sin. Don't, don't try to find that. Not, I'm not telling you to go look under rocks and try to find your sin. But when you see yourself get frustrated and you see yourself, you know that you've sinned, you don't necessarily know why. Seek that. Seek to understand why. Assume. In that, there's probably some pride. And, and, and look at yourself and start finding, because you know that, that pride is a blinder, so you're not going to see your own pride. You have to look for it. And I'm not telling you to look for it under every rock and under leaf, but when you sin, when you fail, and you're not sure what's going on, I encourage you to ask God to open your eyes to see if there's any pride within you. The answer is probably going to be yes. Third point we're going to see this morning. Humility opens the floodgates of grace. Humility opens the floodgates of grace. Going back to verse 6, he says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. This greater grace that God is offering for us is only available to those that are humble. This greater grace is not available to the proud. I was ministering in, in First Baptist and I was ministering in a prideful heart. I didn't understand about brokenness. I didn't understand about, about, uh, uh, about my need to die to myself. I thought in and of myself I had value. God wasn't working through me. And I wasn't as close with him as I certainly could have been. Humility opens the floodgates. Now he goes on, he says, 
God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want to turn in your Bible, if you don't mind, to Luke chapter 18, verse 10. God gives grace to the humble. Two men went up into a temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to him, uh, this to himself, God, I, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, Unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and you can just see this, right? I fast twice a week. Man, I'm a good guy. I pay taxes to all that I get, not just to some, to all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away is even unwilling to lift up his his eyes to heaven. was beating his breast saying God be merciful to me the sinner I tell you this man went to his house justified rather than the other I don't know about you, but I can certainly see myself as a tax collector. And in order for you to grow spiritually, you need to be able to see yourself in the tax collector's shoe as well. And we do do that. I mean, maybe not as, not as much, maybe not as obvious, maybe not as, as grossly as the tax collector does, but certainly we do look at it. I actually do that a lot. Unfortunately, this week, if I've been, as I've been studying pride, well, wow. I think far too much of myself and, and it's just gross as you start looking at how much you think that you know what you're doing and you think you have value and you think you have strength and, and, and you think you know what's going on. And, and if, I, if I understood the truth, I would be on my knees and in the word all the time, at least more. But I... Thought. I could do it. This tax collector, he saw himself, didn't he? The tax collector saw himself for who he is. The tax collector saw himself for the reality of who he was. The tax collector saw himself for a sinner, and the tax collector couldn't even look up to God. Tax collector found grace. Sorry if I messed my microphone up there, sound guy. That was on me, not you. The tax collector found grace through his humility. What is humility? Humility is recognizing one's own weakness while at the same time recognizing God's all-sufficiency. Hey, I just found that verse I was looking at earlier. John Flavel says this, they that know God will be humbled and they that know themselves cannot be proud. 
And there's a reality in that, that in order for us to be humbled, we have to know God. In order for us to realize that we're prideful, we have to know God. I mean, we can't, we can't be the person that God wants us to be by being somebody who doesn't read God's word. Like if you want to grow, now if you don't want to grow, that's another issue. Um, if you're looking, you say, well, I don't really want to grow. I, I have my insurance policy. It's in my back pocket. I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm not sure that you're doing fine. That would be something you would need to talk to your pastors about if you felt that way. Because if we understand what Christ has done for us at the cross, then that cross, that what he's done for us is going to compel us to now want to serve him and give, us his, give him our life and replace. Amen? If we're not wanting to do that, then we have to really question what's going on behind the scenes. But as we see the reality of ourselves, start to grow in that truth of humility. A.W. Pink wrote this. Just as the sinner's despair of any hope for, for himself is the first prerequisite of sound conversion. Now listen to this. So the loss of all confidence in himself is the first essential thing a believer needs to do to grow. Think about that. The first essential thing we need to do to grow as believers is to lose all significant, all importance in and of ourselves. In, in order for us to grow spiritually, we have to die to ourselves. In order for us to grow spiritually, to grow in relation with God, in order for us to grow in intimacy, in, in intimacy we have to die to ourselves. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. Going back to Isaiah 66 too, for my hand made all things, thus all these things come into being, declares the Lord. But this is the one I look to him who is humble, contrite, in spirit and, and trembles at my word. Romans 7, and I've already alluded to this, says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. That's the beginning of humility. Humility is not going to be a destination like we talked about earlier. It is, uh, it, it is a journey. It's a process. Certainly, I'm coming to you, and I've said this three times, not as an expert, as a beginner, but understanding more that, that in order for me to humble, I, humble myself, I have to realize the truth of who I am. That's the beginning of everything. And nobody wants to, well, most of us don't want to do that. Because, hey, you know, why is it that we don't like criticism? Why is it that we don't like people telling us you know, that we've done something wrong. And, and why is it that, that we, we don't like people telling us stuff about ourselves, even, even if it's true? 
because our identity is in ourselves and then we need to learn to die to that. That's the beginning of spiritual growth. Dying to our identity being in ourselves and learning that, that I have no value in myself. That is in the flesh. I have value in Christ. I am valuable in Christ, absolutely. But I, have, I bring nothing to the table in my flesh. And that is the beginning of spiritual growth. Revelations 3, 17 says, because you say that I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you're wretched, you're miserable and poor, blind and naked, we, we just don't understand. John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase. I must decrease. And you can see how it's so easy to mix this up, can't you? How you can say that you're reading the Bible and it talks about how that we need to just, you know, try harder and to, and to, to, to confess our sins. And, and it just seems like it's turning all of that back into myself. Look, if, if, if I just work harder, then everything is good. But God's not saying that at all. He said, if I realize that I bring nothing to the table and I depend upon him for everything. And I find the strength. In closing, we're looking at James chapter four, look at seven through 10. It's the remaining context to this one passage. And it really describes how that we are to humble ourselves. It says, number one, verse seven, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee to you. Number one thing, how do I humble myself? I have to submit to God. I, I can't choose to, to work harder in and of myself and to value my own independence and my own self and, and look at what the world teaches us about this. You know, if you feel depressed, you feel sad, you know, just think more highly of yourself. Just, 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 uh, just look at yourself better. Be more, be, be more happy about who you are. And the Bible's saying exactly the opposite. You want to try true contentment and true peace, you have to realize that we bring nothing to the table. We have to die to that. And I have to submit to God because he's not going to share his glory with anyone. And then not just that I need to submit to God. Verse 8, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Secondly, I need to seek him. So there needs to be a choice in my mind. I need to make a choice that, look, there, there's nothing in and of myself. Uh, so if I'm going to grow spiritually, I'm going to seek God and be dependent in every aspect of my life. That's going to be my goal. That's the first aspect. Secondly, is to draw near to God. I have to come to the point to where I draw near to him. And, and I know this is the difficult part. Um, 
you know, we come to church and you walk in and you're kind of, oh man, not again. And then you're not really into it. And then you hear worship like we just heard, which was amazing. Praise the Lord, right? And you start listening to the words and, and you start hearing the words and, and the words start drawing you in. It's not the music. We appreciate the music, but it's the words and they draw you in. And as you, and you start drawing nearer to God, and as you're listening to the word and you come into the word and, and, you, and, and, you, and you hear the message and it draws you into God and you start, reality, you start realizing who he is. And as you, as you spend more time thinking and worshiping about God and realizing who he is, he draws you close to himself. We have to do that. And then thirdly, This might sound a little weird. But he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What in the world is he saying? Understand that this is James. He's writing in, in uh, Hebrew uh, uh, wisdom literature. Uh, form that's his uh, that's his form of writing, and so this has more of a flavor of the Psalms or or the Song of uh, or not the Psalms I'm sorry uh, Proverbs or the Song of Solomon has more of that wisdom literature uh, feel. So what is that verse actually saying? He said he said look cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to to, to sadness. What is he saying? Hate your sin. Hate it. Call it for what it is. If, if, if you want to grow closer and you want to have a relationship with God that is closer and closer, more intimately, you need to be honest with yourself about your sin. And that's hard to do. You have to understand the gospel. You have to allow the gospel to hold you up. And if the gospel is holding you up. You have a little more ability to do that. But you have to call your sin what it really is. Romans 12, 2 says, what? Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of his mind. And the way that we transform our mind is by being honest about our sin in our minds, telling it the truth. Hey, it wasn't okay that I did this. What I did wasn't just, you know, kind of a little thing, that wasn't insignificant what I do. Call it what it is. And as you call sin what it is, you see yourself for what you are and it humbles you. And then he finishes in verse 10. He says, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. I don't know about you, but I'm assuming that with those people here, there's someone, at least one person, is looking out and saying, you know, there's some areas in my life that I need grace. And I'm sure that's an absolute understatement. I'm sure there's far more than one person that's looking out and saying, hey, there's a few areas in my life that I need grace. I mean, I need grace in my marriage. 
I need grace with my kids. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell you what to do when Johnny just bought, bought, bit Susie, right? And we need grace. And God gives grace. And he gives grace abundantly. And he gives grace far more than exceedingly what we can need or even understand. We have to come in with the right attitude. We have to come in the right perspective. If we want to be more intimate with our Savior, then we have to stop stealing his glory and come to him with a humble heart. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you this morning. We realize, Lord, that our mind's eye lies to us, tells us that we're better than we, we truly are. And Father, I pray that you might help us see the truth of who we are, see the truth of the reality of, of who I am. So an understanding of who we are we can truly learn and understand how much we need you. And Father, that you're willing to give us grace and you're willing to give us power and you, 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 you own that. And it's far more than we can ever imagine, even though we think sometimes there's not enough grace. There is. But it's dependent upon our attitude. Help us humble ourselves. See our pride and trust you. Give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.